Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James, and for today's episode, I'm joined across the dispatch box by none other than Zach Green. On today's episode, I should say it's currently the 5th of March, we're going to be discussing the Chancellor's budget. But before we get into that, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Uh, I think moving away from the budget, something that's caught my attention um, was actually the Prime Minister and Carrie Simon's uh, home renovation of the number 11 flat. But it's uh, apparently going to cost £200,000. And Boris Johnson is really unhappy about that. He's been quoted to say this is absolutely... um, monstrous that uh, many methods have been discussed of how to pay for the uh, the renovations and one of them is about asking Tory donors to pay for it which um, is quite entertaining when you look at uh, the frustration from Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons as to basically renovating the entire flat. Yeah I mean that's a really interesting story um, and when it came out, it, it had kind of the, the markings of what could potentially turn out to be a political scandal that never was. I think the most interesting for me about this is how Carrie Simons keeps kind of popping up in kind of the political discourse. And that's not something we've seen under kind of Theresa May or, or David Cameron and, and those kind of figures. So, yeah, I think it's interesting that we're starting to see a little bit more of the prime minister's kind of partner involved in, in public discourse. Uh, the, the thing that caught my attention, um, Cyprus and Portugal, so they hope to welcome vaccinated British tourists from May. Um, the Cypriot government has said that those who have had two uh, coronavirus jabs could travel, while the Portuguese government said that people who tested negative or were immune, immune being, being the, the translated quote, could visit. And I think this is interesting because it paints a picture as to what will come next in kind of the cycle of the coronavirus and kind of the next phase of, of, of our experience of the pandemic. Um, and I think it speaks to a lot about kind of libertarians' fears about kind of being coerced into having the vaccine. And there was that ridiculous column in one of the Sunday papers who's, I can't remember the author, but you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, oh, Peter Hitchens. Yeah, I, I can't believe I read it. I did read it and it was just the fun. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But, but if you haven't read Peter, Peter Hitchens's column, basically what he says is that he took the vaccine but didn't want to because he had to take the vaccine so he could go and see his family who live abroad, um, which would be a perfectly legitimate position to hold if he didn't spend the last six months saying how bad the vaccine was and how he didn't want to take it and discouraging people from taking it. So, yeah, that's kind of my brief piece on that one. So, Zach, what do you make of kind of vaccinations and international travel and all this kind of stuff? Are you, are you even on a personal level, are you looking to go abroad anytime soon? Well, um, given that the Euros are set to potentially be hosted actually in our, in our country, um, Probably any idea of going abroad, I think in this climate, I think as a, as a general note, it's been quite off-putting that it seems that there's a lot of bureaucracy about it. That, you know, for example, the, the concept of um, vaccine passports or quarantining or repetitive testing. And it, it's putting off a lot of people, I think, from travelling, unless you're an influencer, for example. But in general, in general, um, I, I I think I'll be waiting another year. Just to, again, you want that sense of normality, don't you? Of just getting going to an airport, getting on the plane, landing, going to a hotel. 
Whereas at the moment, I think like what could be a two hour journey, for example, could end up being a five or six. And in a way that kind of takes the novelty of going on holiday. Um, it, it's interesting in the fact that the concept of vaccine passports, it came up on a uh, Peston uh, last week and Grant Chaps was talking about how it looks like it's going to be a unilateral thing, that it's going to be up to each government to decide. Yet he was talking to Spanish, Portuguese and other governments about how international restrictions are going to be lifted. And in a way, again, ironically, the UK could be a world leading country in this because at the moment we are, I think, the highest that have the highest vaccinated population out of well the world, maybe I think second to the US in terms of proportion, we are the highest. And it will be up to us, I think, to kind of set the tone. What What's our policy on on um, either COVID uh, vaccine passports or even international travel coming back into the United Kingdom? So it's something to look out for. Uh, I'm personally not planning to go on holiday anytime soon, maybe 2022, but who knows? Yeah, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm I'm meant to be going to a to a European Championship game in Budapest on Sunday, the twenty seventh of June, I think, maybe July, whenever the tournament is. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just not looking likely for that, isn't it? And I think yeah, it's it's a lot of bureaucracy to be dealing with when it comes to international travel. And the biggest risk for me, I mean, I, I would honestly. I'm so bored that I would, if if it was legal to do so, I'd jump on a plane tomorrow and go wherever. Bureaucracy aside, and kind of if it, if that was the legal thing to do, which at the minute obviously it's not, um, I would just because I'm so incredibly bored. So if it was legal for me to go to the Euros um, in Budapest and and all that kind of stuff, that'd be great. But the, the the biggest issue for me, kind of making me not want to want to go, is the risk that kind of Hungary could be added to the kind of the red list that the government has and then you'd be forced to quarantine in a hotel for 10 days which will cost cost you like 1700 quid which frankly I, I can't afford and that's that that will be an issue for so many people who just want to have a cheap holiday in Benidorm or whatever it might be um so yeah ultimately that's that is I think the main stumbling block in the way of kind of international travel at the moment and of course that has a huge implication on on lots of different sectors of both the British and international economies because if I don't go on holiday I'm not paying the taxi driver to take me to the airport he has kind of less fares all this kind of stuff but it has lots of knock-on impacts kind of the tourist industry and mm. I think people very quickly dismiss it as being just about kind of me being able to go and sit on a beach for a week when when in all honesty there are real life economic impacts of people being able to go on holiday so yeah I think that's that's something to bear in mind of course people will argue well you could go on holiday in the UK. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't excite me. This isn't a political point, um, and it's not kind of particularly analytical, but just it really saddens me to think that I'd spend the same amount of money on a holiday in a random city in the UK as I would going somewhere abroad and, and experiencing something new in nicer weather. I just think it should be cheaper in the UK, but of course the cost of living means that it's just it's just not cheaper. So yeah, that that's that's my issue with with staycations as they will. Although someone who want more people in the UK to be having staycations is our Mexican Coke loving <laughs> Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. Um, so Zach, it was it was the budget this week, of course. Of course. Uh, what was your headline takeaway? The headline takeaway for me, um, 
is the devil in the detail that Rishi Sunak didn't actually promise a lot. If you boil everything down to what was said and what's in the budget, there's two completely different things. What was proposed by Rishi Sunak was essentially that the economic crisis is absolutely huge and the borrowing that we're undertaking is completely unsustainable. Yet, because we're still really as we were this time last year, Rishi Sunak's first budget where he dedicated £12.9 billion pounds to, to COVID-19. Um, how he wishes that's all he had to dedicate this time around. I think we're now up to around £401 billion pounds on COVID. Our borrowing is sky high and our debt is, um, I believe, up to levels of World War Two. But the big headline really is, again, like I say, the devil in the detail that 2023 mooted as a potential general election date uh, as per the times back on, I think, Saturday, if the economy was doing really well. 2023 is going to be the year when the stealth tax rises that have been completely uh, dominating the, the budget will start to kick in. And again, if you read this, the, uh, the details of spending commitments, it's when you begin to see a, a withdrawal of a lot of money being pumped into certain sectors. So 2023 is the, the headline date once you boil the detail in the budget down, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that that's one. Of course, that's obviously really important. And kind of the, the stealth tax rises that we'll talk about later in the show is also something that, that's gained a lot of attention over the, over the course of the week. The one the one policy that kind of caught my eye in particular was the fact that furlough is being extended all the way into September. Um, and there's two ways in which you can interpret this. You can say, well, it's good of the government to extend it because it means that businesses that aren't able to bring back the full roster of staff at the moment have kind of a backup cushion and they can keep people in those jobs. Of course, important to remember that the furlough scheme is actually called kind of the coronavirus job retention scheme. It's about keeping people in jobs that they can go back to once the pandemic is over. If you take a less charitable read of, of the decision to extend furlough, you could perhaps argue that, well, this simply shows that the government isn't confident that people won't need furlough by September, for example. What do you think about that? Do you think this is the government not being ambitious enough with its timetable of ending the pandemic? Or do you think this is just good politics and good governance? It, I think it's good politics, but not good economics. I think, again, Rishi Sunak completely completely gets it right that you know the current levels of borrowing completely unsustainable. Something has to be done about it. Yet at the same time, the furlough policy is a huge policy that... It's not just about employment, in my opinion, with the furlough scheme. Essentially, businesses are being kept afloat by the inception of the furlough scheme because, of course, if a business is in shutdown, they're still paying their employees. At the moment, I believe it's 20% they have to pay, and the government pays the extra 80 It's that same idea. We kept saying it every time that the furlough has been extended. It's just another end date. It's the same with the VAT deferrals. It's the same as the business rates holidays. You can only stop business going bust or people becoming unemployed for so long there's that cut-off date that say for example we come to September the worst possible scenario is that I don't know there's a new strain or the lifting of restrictions was so fast that we're in some sort of restriction based system again do you extend the furlough again or do you go it alone and if once it comes to September October November which a lot of politicians and a lot of uh, the commentariat are saying that's when the next round of really difficult decisions that's going to have to be taken, the autumn statement by Rishi Sunak, 
it poses that question of just how reliant is most of our economy on the furlough scheme and if it's quite a lot then withdrawing it at any date is going to cause a lot of hardship and harm on our economy so i don't think in terms of the skepticism is the chief skepticism anyway is that they anticipate that lockdown could happen again i don't think that's the reason i think it's genuinely because they're seeing that a lot of businesses are really reliant on the furlough scheme for better or for worse and to withdraw it in the summer or to completely incrementally do it for, for example from the summer i think that was mooted a few months ago that we'd get to around this part of the year and it would it would start to climb down so from 80 to 70 to 60 and then eventually it would fall away whereas again we've got no details apart from i believe that in the end i think business will have to play a bit more after september but again we don't know what's going to happen after september is it going to completely go is it not so it's good politics in terms of it's keeping people in jobs it's keeping businesses afloat again not good economics because of what could happen in the next few months yeah that that's kind of my position on this as well i think i just i just think kind of disc and again we, we talk about the discourse and the narrative and all this kind of stuff the rhetoric a lot but I don't think it breeds confidence in the government that they, they felt that they had to announce this at, at, at this stage, that it was going to continue until that day. I think it's wise that furlough has been extended until September. I'm a little bit surprised that kind of more detail wasn't given about how that might look. So could the Chancellor kind of reduce the percentage of kind of wages that are covered by the government, for example, it's, it's still somewhat opaque. Um, so that's interesting. I think... The biggest thing with furlough is just simply the, the sheer number of people who are, are still on it. I mean, mm. before non-essential retail, I, I, I say this as someone who is currently on furlough. I think there's around 4.5 million people in the UK on furlough. The peak kind of in the, in, in the first lockdown last year, I think it was 9 million people. So there's there's still an exceptionally high dependency on the furlough system, um, and I'm not using dependency to suggest that it's 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 some way nefarious and shouldn't be used. I'm, I'm mm. saying dependent because they are quite literally using the, the furlough scheme because they need to, um, and it creates some problems if if you pull that away too quickly. So I think yeah, in terms of in terms of furlough, I think the Chancellor's got it just about right. As I say, it makes me worry a little bit about the government's confidence in in them keeping the coronavirus figures down but ultimately it's so much better than what happened last time because you remember kind of back in the autumn when we were we were literally days away from the end of furlough Rishi Sunak announced the replacement to furlough and then because the coronavirus cases got so high in the days after that they were forced to reintroduce it until kind of April this year and then of course extended it later on so in terms of giving businesses certainty that's that's a big boost and that, that that's a good move from from the government for me absolutely and again it's going to be that we assume that june is going to be when restrictions are apparently all, all are going to be lifted and if rishi sunak was wise and perhaps was kind of angling for another job for example in government we could see Rishi Sunak take the country by surprise that once everything's lifted, he'd set out the roadmap, which I think is crucial for the government in terms of electioneering, because I think every government is always in election mode, especially this government in particular, that perhaps the vision for the country post-furlough, it doesn't have to be post-COVID, it's post-furlough. Okay, how do we imagine our, essentially their welfare state? How do we 
imagine our pay. And if Rishi Sunak say, okay, well, we're now starting to incrementally take the furlough away and perhaps replace it with another system that's not furlough itself, but kind of, again, supporting working people, it could be a vote winner. It could be something that draws the line to the next election. I think I was reading it in the Financial Times that their analysis was that this budget essentially was setting out really the conservative angle for the next general election, which, it, again, it appears miles away. But if we're to believe the sources in the Times that Boris Johnson is aiming for that 2023 date, which I think would be a, a very interesting, very bold move from him, because that would be the Tories going for a fifth consecutive election victory, at a time where the recovery may not have happened, it, we could be in a position where the recovery is still happening or even the recovery is going really well. Um, this budget, I think, is the, is the, the wheels in motion and it, it will be interesting, especially with Thurlow, as to what replaces it if there's going to be a replacement for it. One of the most kind of unpopular things about the Chancellor's most recent announcement was how it would affect the wages of people in the National Health Service. Zach, what's the story on this one? So on the backdrop of, um, again, a freeze to public sector pay, the government are apparently going to be offering a 1% pay rise for those in the NHS, which if you look at the circumstances of what's going to happen in two years' time, this 1% is... Um, not even symbolic, I'd say. It's quite uh, quite a controversial measure. Yeah, I mean, there was such a kind of, it, it was very much kind of shrug the shoulders and say, well, is, is that it? And I think that there was a quote last year from the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, who said, look, I, I will fight to make sure that people are given kind of the praise they deserve as a result of the pandemic. And the question was ultimately about kind of wages for people working in the in the um, national health service so i think this is again it's a policy that is is gravely unpopular i think you'll struggle to find someone who thinks that people working in in the nhs don't deserve more than a one percent pay rise um but it's a policy that the government won't be punished for because it's not something that is honestly on the forefront of most people's minds they'll look at this and go well yeah i don't like it does it affect me no, so they probably it probably won't affect how people vote. Um, I just think the government. Th this is an open goal for the government, and they should have done more. And I think we can criticize. It's 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 really obvious what we're saying here. The government ultimately should have looked at this pandemic and gone, yeah, we should probably do something a little bit more, even if it was just a, a PR boost. And I think that's ultimately what I'm saying here is it is it, it, it's bad politics. Speaking of bad politics. I think it's even worse for politics from from the opposition parties that the government hasn't mm. had had to deal with more criticism over this. Like it's been what three days since the budget, and no one's really talking about it anymore. It just feels a bit odd. Yeah, it, most uh, well again the uh, halcyon days, the twenty seventeen to nineteen Parliament, where the budget would fall apart within hours rather than days. Yeah. It's, Again, the opposition have really been quite lacklustre, haven't they? After Keir Starber's apparent keynote speech on the economy, which I don't really know what he was offering, um, you'd expect a bit more of a furore from them in this in this uh, in this budget because it 
if you look at it on, it on its surface, the tax rise is huge and it's taking a lot of people into tax and Labour who brand themselves as a part of the family are seeing that a lot of um, lots of families do have workers in the National Health Service and a 1% rise is, is quite paltry, right? And it's kind of the tone of this opposition. I'd say so far it's been either behind or really fails to grap with issue, grapple with issues that really are labour issues that they should be really hammering home. So, for example, for the public sector, not much has been said on public sector pay being frozen. Um, again, all these comparisons for labour in 1945, the National Health Service was kind of key to that, that labour government under Clement Attlee. Again, nothing we've heard has been quite substantial in the NHS. And it's quite disappointing because, again, it was an open goal for the government to say, look, we acknowledge that the NHS has been completely crucial because, of course, we use the vaccination programme as a huge success of this country, a huge success of this government, which I think we should. Yet at the same time, we're saying thanks to the vaccination programme, here's one percent, which is going to inevitably be outstripped by tax rises anyway. So. Again, it's the idea of that forward thinking. What's the Labour vision in 2023 or 2024? What's our National Health Service going to look like? Is it going to be a rewarding place for people to work? Well, no, at the moment it's not because of the awful hours, the ridiculous pay, the lack, lack of rises, and then the cost of living going up at the same time. And it's it's key Labour issues that have just not gone Keir Starmer's way. And if you look at the current opinion polls, they're 13 points behind after the, the budget which for the Labour Party to make those inroads into the, the Tory party because we all said I think we've been saying it for months that the budget was going to be quite unpopular how wrong were we you know the, the Tories are basically back to where they were at the general election the budget's one of the most popular in about 10 years and you've heard nothing really from Labour and I know we're very far from a general election, but it's still quite bad politics for them to not to really be quite silent. And it it's easy pickings for Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak to say, well, it's not even hindsight. It's literally they're offering nothing. Yet we're offering this, this, this and this. And it's bad politics, I think, to the voters that Labour need to win at the next election. Yeah, I, I think on kind of the remarks I said earlier, I think one of the important points to make is that there will be some people among the electorate who think that this isn't the right time to give anyone a pay, pay rise because there are still people living on furlough. There are people who have been made redundant. And in comparison, people in the NHS have job security. Um, that's not my view. Um, I think that when you do a good job, you should probably be rewarded for it. And I think the NHS have done a fantastic job to be completely honest um and again it's important to, it's important to put this in context it's not like people in the in the nhs have had a history of being treated to lots of lavish pay rises by the government both conservative and labor this has been against the, the backdrop of the past kind of 10 years of, of not being given any sort of kind of pay rise since kind of the global financial crisis struck in 2008 so i think it's long overdue um, and I don't think it would be a particularly unpopular policy among the broader electorate. Of course, there will be some people who disagree. Um, and I understand why I get kind of it, times are really tough for people across the country. Um, but I think if we can afford to spend insert many millions of dollars here on a on an app that didn't work or, or whatever it might be, or 
repainting the, the prime minister's private jet i mean I, I think we can afford some sort of pay rise or bonus for for people working in kind of frontline health services like the nhs zach um what about public services kind of beyond the national health service what what does the budget mean for things kind of of that nature well um i think we should be asking rishi zunak that too because again the, the the general tone of the budget was protecting businesses, keeping them afloat, and essentially putting out stuff for the tax. And then apart from that, nothing really much was said. And head driving actually was it's kind of links to other public services. The freeze on fuel duty, it's something that, that really perplexed me because we saw not long ago Boris Johnson kind of put out that the UK is going to be a leading climate activists that you know the green the green recovery all of those things yet at the same time we're freezing fuel duty which is going to have obviously the undesired effect i think of empowering a lot of people a lot of businesses to still use fossil fuels for example and that move towards electricity and other forms of, of renewable energy is going to be delayed again but apart from that, again, there's nothing that's been said that's substantial in the budget for other public services. And I think the key takeaway from the budget was the hard decisions, the real, really hard decisions about cutting or even potential further tax rises in, in, the, um, in the explicit are going to be deferred to the autumn statement. And it's that key thing we say about Rishi Sunak quite a lot, that... This is a guy who wants to be loved by everyone, akin to Boris Johnson. There's only so much you can do before you start making promote big spending and big seat. And then over the next couple of years, it's going to be the complete reversal. Again, it'll be catnip Labour. I've really heard what Labour think about it, as with everything at the moment. So, yeah, what it means for other public services and other sectors we don't really know it, it, it's again it's all it's a bit of can kicking isn't it and i think that's really puzzling for everyone uh, to get their heads around i agree i think the headline takeaway from the budget is basically that as you say Zach, they are very much kicking the can down the road in terms of making the difficult decisions I think one of the important things to note as well is is that kind of universities as well, considering that there were lots of different packages for different kind of organisations, kind of the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport gave out a, another big package for summer sports this time. Um, and I mean, university students were given £50 million on the 2nd of February, um, which is in addition to the £20 million pounds that was allocated to university students in December. The new funding, and I'm, I'm quoting the government website here, the new funding means that universities will be able to help students impacted by the pandemic. For example, those facing additional costs for alternative accommodation, loss of loss of employment or extra costs to access their teaching online. Universities will distribute the funding and will be able to prioritise the funding for those most in need. The increased financial support comes as the majority of students have been asked to continue their studies remotely as part of measures to reduce the transmission of the coronavirus. I am so fed up with how the government treats 
um, university students and universities more generally. This is just ridiculous. Fifty million pounds couldn't buy you a world class left winger. It couldn't buy you a twenty goal a season striker in the Premier League. And they think they're going to fix the university system with with fifty million pounds. I just cannot believe that that that's a serious thing. Um, I mean. <sighs> University is really tough right now. University has has been pretty bad, to be completely honest. And I'm not criticising the institution that I attend. I'm just criticising the whole system. I mean, how could it possibly be as good as what it was before? Even if you went to the best university in the world and they still gave you the best possible experience under the coronavirus, it simply would not be a substitution between the two because it's a very different experience for me to sit in kind of my spare bedroom and do lectures or to sit in a nice fancy building on campus and do lectures or to use the facilities like the library that's been shut recently. I mean, it's just stuff like that. It's just not equivalent. Um, so this 50 million pounds to, to universities, I think, is a little bit insulting, to be completely honest. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to to get that off my chest. Yeah, I, I completely agree that the more bug-bearing thing is that whatever happens with the university, we are still going to be paying it in some form once we enter employment. We still pay that extra bit of tax. Uh, it's essentially a glorified graduate tax, isn't it? So we walk out of university paying for something that really wasn't worth it. And again, it's where where does the Conservatives see the land lying? Surely university students University cities are a key weakness for the Conservative Party, um, has been for a long, long time. It doesn't just predate Jeremy Corbyn years or even the Ed Miliband years. Just in general, with our age group, the Conservatives really don't have that much joy. Yet, again, it's fertile territory, isn't it? You know, if you want to rebrand yourself, as we know that Rishi Sunak's obsessed with branding, we know that Boris Johnson is obsessed with electioneering in, in any form and getting one over on Labour and a lot of young people are quite disillusioned with this Labour Party. Again, it's it's political political news, isn't it, that you really would be make, doing a lot more or even appearing to make it look like you're doing a lot more. It, it, it doesn't have to be a lot, it just I think for some students, it's just the acknowledgement that things can't be normal because look at what we're experiencing, you know, doing lectures online, doing seminars online, when just a year ago today, we were being told that le online lectures were not a supplement to or even a substitution to actual face-to-face -face learning, that it's not the same. It, it, you can't learn like this. Then all of a sudden it's well, we're giving you something, can't we? So, you know, pay the £9,000 or, you know, as we go into employment. It's just perplexing. And it, education as a whole, I think, is in a real rabbit hole. That a product of years and years of, again, can kicking about how you're supposed to sort out higher education. It's come to a point where COVID-19 and the, the, the long effects of COVID has really put the education system under so much pressure, especially teachers, that things can't be normal. For example, I think the exams are going to be postponed again for A-levels and GCSEs, or again, something's going to be done about that. Uh, we can't just get back, go back to normal. I think it's going to be, as we heard with Tony Blair, education, education, education. It will be a fertile territory, I think, for the next general election as well, that 
what do both parties see the vision of this country and a lot of it's going to stem from education we're looking at the generations of the future they're going to come out of this completely disadvantaged because they've had like asymmetric learning some have learned more than others some schools have dealt with it better than others teachers are going to be under immense strain and again how do you incentivize being a teacher at the moment you're again you're being paid not that much and essentially your hours have been extended but because i think i think that's a big problem of us at university at the moment in terms of this kind of learning from home is our work never leaves us that for me i'm in my campus room my laptop's on the desk the bed's about two meters away the work's always just going to be there whereas i always feel like once things were back once things were at normal pace you could kind of put your work in the library put your work somewhere else and then once you come back to your room or go back to wherever you live on you around the university city you're at home you don't have to deal with it whereas the same thing is happening with teachers their laptops in one room that they, they could literally be 10 meters away and the work never leaves them they're doing a lot more work for the same kind of thing and they're not being recognized for it it's going to be something that's going to dominate I think the discourse over the next few years about how is the education system going to be changed for the better because surely it can't go on like this. I agree and I, I think there's lots of different policies that the government could kind of look into that would appease students. I think uh, even me as a personal example I think if the government said to me look we'll give you as they have done in Northern Ireland, it's important to note that this is actually the policy in Northern Ireland. We'll give you a, a cash sum now as compensation for the fact that your university experience has just been a bit naff. Um, and then maybe cut off some money off, off the tuition fees from the past couple of years. I'm not even talking about much money in, in, the long, in the long term, because you've got to remember that the amount of interest that we pay on student loans is astronomical. So even if they just said, look, we'll give you £500 now, spend it on a PS5, and we'll, we'll knock off £500 from this year's tuition fees, they'd immediately get that money back through the amount of people who pay interest on top of their student loans anyway. So I, I just think there's there's ways of, of appeasing students on, on this kind of front, to be completely honest. I, I just think there is an easier way to deal with students and giving them £50 million to kind of not really do much with, I don't, I don't think is particularly helpful. You mentioned Zach schools, um, and I feel like we're probably getting towards the end of the podcast, so we'll shift it a little bit further away from kind of the budget because I think it's quite easy to get very deep and very heavy into kind of the economic stuff, and that's not particularly what we find interesting. Um, schools return on, on Monday, the 8th of March, which will be joyous for many kind of parents around the country and probably kids around the country too, I can imagine. Um, what do you make of, of the return of students? Do you think it's too quick, too slow? Do you think the government have done enough in preparing schools for, for Monday? I do feel quite ambivalent towards it. I, I don't think it's too soon. I don't think it's too late. I think the timing is okay. It's more the preparation of this is going to be the first, I think, litmus test of lifting the restrictions. And it's a battle within the Tory party that if schools go back and cases stay relatively low the vaccination program still continues at pace then Boris Johnson will actually be under a lot more pressure because a lot of prominent MPs in his party such as Mark Carper who was on Peston last week actually who delivered quite an eloquent argument for lifting restrictions quite 
uh, much more quicker than the government's plans, they will be saying, well, a, a chief cause of what happened last time was schools went back too early, cases went up because essentially the circulation of the virus was quite rampant. If it doesn't happen this time, there will be a school of thought, I think, within government, let alone the Tory party, of surely then June should become perhaps May, maybe even April. Again, we might be getting too ahead of ourselves. I think, again, if they're going to be driven by data, I don't think the, the date for total lifting of restrictions moves yet. The political pressure of, well, schools are back, cases are still down, deaths are down, hospitalizations are down, vaccinations are up, then it's going to be a lot of pressure to lift things quite quick, quite quickly. So I think schools going back is quite symbolic of how we're going to get out of this uh, never ending lockdown. Could this be the way out that if schools are fine, then perhaps the roadmap looks even brighter? I think the schools issue is, is going to be really important. And uh, it's a great point that you make about kind of the, the government's roadmap towards the summer is simply I think the thing that stands out to me is the fact that if cases rise when when students go back to school that is going to be a big political and obviously health issue for the government to deal with if they are able to keep cases down that will be so important in instilling confidence in businesses and in people around the country as saying this well yeah maybe by the 21st of of June, things might actually be back to some form of, of normality, not the new normal, but but just normal. I think on this point and on kind of the general roadmap, this is the first big test of what the government has done over recent weeks. Because of course, we had the announcement uh, last month, as it was now, um, about kind of how we're going to enter this roadmap and how eventually we're going to end up with kind of life as it was. The return of schools is, is basically the first substantive change that will make a huge difference to people's lives and to kind of the amount of social interaction that happens. So if the government is able to keep case numbers down, if the country is able to keep case numbers down, I think that will be a kind of feather in the cap of the government. If cases go back up again, I worry about how that might set people back psychologically, myself included, because I'm just so fed up of, of not being able to sit in a pub and eat chicken strips or whatever it would be. Um, Zach, I wanted to ask you, we love discourse on this on this radio show, on this podcast. Um, I wanted to ask you about the government's new adverts. Have you seen them? Uh, I've seen bits and pieces. I've not seen the full advert yet. Do you, so have you seen the billboards? Yes. Do you prefer them to the old ones? Um, I don't know. It, it's what it, it kind of does capture attention. You look at it and you think, oh, OK. Um, I, I don't have a preference yet. I always thought that billboards have been quite an outdated kind of form of advertising. I always feel like because we're a more digitised um, population that really you're going at it, at, like you said, through the adverts, perhaps through ads on your phone from YouTube, even Twitter. So I always feel the billboards aren't effective as they used to be perhaps, what, 10, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, they are still quite striking, aren't they? I think they're much they're much better um, than what they were. So obviously the government has gone from the people sat in the hospital beds on kind of oxygen struggling for their lives to kind of pictures of 
of people walking around the supermarket with face masks on. And I, I tweeted this, I think, over last week or the week before, basically saying that it was really starting to wind me up how aggressive the government's discourse on the coronavirus has been. Um, it, it, we had, I'm sure Zach loved this advert, the uh, Home Office and its kind of weird anti-piracy uh, advert spin-off that they did. And I was just like, the, the government is so obsessed about enforcement of the rules that really they should be trying to paint a picture of, of what comes next. And I, I just like the new billboards because they are a little bit more positive with regards to, to the summer ahead. I think they're more relatable as well, aren't they? That um, before, I, before I broke my glasses, and one thing I really hated about wearing face masks was this was at the height of the winter where you'd walk into a supermarket. The minute you breathe, the glasses go misty. It's a real issue for me as in, oh, my God, I have to wipe them, put them back on. They missed up again. And you kind of think, oh, God, I just want to take the face mask off. Yet the kind of it's relatability, isn't it? There's a lot of people out there that have the same problem that really don't like face masks for that reason. And they say, but there's a reason that you can be happy about your glasses getting misty. You'd rather your glasses getting misty than people you know and love getting coronavirus and potentially being in a really bad way. So it's a, I think it's a good change of tack for the government. And it remains to be seen whether or not they might, they might even change it again. Because once I think restrictions lift, I think one thing the government can't get completely wrong is Boris Johnson has emphasised common sense. That will be the next phase, I think, for these adverts that, OK, the face mask is off now, but are you going to really go over the top once restrictions are lifted? That remains to be seen. Hopefully the government do change their advertising when that happens. Yeah, I think I think that's ultimately the distinction that needs to be drawn, whether it's kind of a positive move or a negative move I think it's all about how the public responds about how the government leads and I think now is a time when when the country really does need good leadership strong leadership kind of strong and stable governance uh, for want of a better phrase I think yeah I think that's just what people want and I think kind of uh, it's just a mood isn't there I mean every time I ring my parents the conversation is very much like oh what you've been up to nothing cool see you later um it's just that isn't it there's, there's not really much to talk about um and a case in point I tweeted this the other day um I was in a seminar last week for European Union policy making which is actually more interesting than it sounds um and the seminar tutor who's new bless him um kind of came into the call sat down was very excited for the seminar and said to everyone so has anyone done anything exciting this week and everyone at that point just kind of turned the microphones off, turned the camera off, and, and that was that was it for the day. It was just like, are you seriously asking us this? So I think, yeah, the, I'm just so looking forward to the summer. Um, whatever the summer brings, I'm, I'm looking forward to to the next phase because it feels like, and I, was, I, I said this to Olivia the other day, it feels like we've not really had the last year. Like, I don't really remember doing anything last summer apart from picnics and things like that so it's going to be nice to go back into the real world absolutely and who knows uh, football might be coming home and normality might be on steroids if uh, England were to make it to the Wembley final and we're allowed in stadiums and on that note Zach do you have any kind of final thoughts for this week's episode of the Midfield Politics podcast um, I just 
probably echo what we said at the beginning that budgets are huge political events are huge economic events and this is certainly not um it's not a but the trend in that sense and the real message i think as with everything at the moment the can is being kicked down the road how long can that be done we don't know but i think one sh uh, shred of positivity from this whole thing is that we are starting to see the end game of the coronavirus pandemic in the sense that we are beginning to project how normality will look like both in the political landscape and also the social landscape. Definitely. Um, yeah, there's so much left. up. I think that's kind of the theme of this podcast. There's so much left up in the air. There's so many different spinning, spinning plates for the government and for the opposition, and it makes for a really tense political atmosphere and of course there were there were cancelled by elections up in scotland uh, the results came out today where they both switched from smp to labor um if you read into the results a little bit more had it been held under first past the post they would have both already have been labor seats um so there was some funky stuff going on with that election anyway but it, it does speak to a kind of a transitional moment in our politics where where things are changing and things are looking really quite interesting at this point in time so yeah i think going forwards there's definitely lots and lots of things to talk about um i think that probably wraps us up for today's episode of the show i hope you've enjoyed our return of course it's been a little while since zach and i sat down to chew over the fat and talk about the world of politics um yeah i think that's it if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on our next show which i assume would would take place next week please do let us know at midfield politic on twitter or you can tweet me at J at luke james 32 or zach via at zachy underscore v2 zach any final words just uh have a good week everyone awesome and that is the end of the show thank you so much for listening to this episode of the midfield politics podcast until next time, stay safe and keep voting.